Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Good, good morning to the lively section over here. My name is Rick and I'm the preaching pastor here at Gospel Community Church. Been off for the past couple weeks doing my second out of my third mini sabbatical. So that went well, but I'm excited to be back and excited to deliver, preach God's word to you guys this morning. So with that, before we jump in, let me say this. Uh, some of you guys are wondering about mask and mask policy. There's a lot of information coming out. I will address it next week for, for a couple reasons. One is the text that we're preaching on lends itself to a great discussion there. Two is I think it's also wise to move slowly when things are coming out and there's a lot of ambiguity around them. And so it just seems like the, 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 the policies are kind of going like this and we just want to maybe let things smooth themselves out and see where things land. And so it's for today. If you guys want to pull your mask down while I'm preaching and smile at me, you can sip your coffee, drink your water. No one's going to tackle you. My wife just gave me a wink. But for a while, I've been preaching to people, and I've said this before, to where it looks like bank robbers, okay? With our frozen shows and population, people, it's hard to get an amen out of. Mixed with mask, it's tough. It's a tough job up here, okay? So if you're comfortable, you can pull down and smile every now and then do something like that. Okay, with that, again, we're going to address it next week and hope to have some more information for you guys with that then. Turn with, uh, with me, if you would, to the book of Judges, the book of Judges. We're going through a series titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. And if you guys could look at the screen for just a minute, you'll, you'll notice something. Trust me, I know I'm right is spelt wrong, okay? It's not just because we're idiots that can't spell correctly. There's purpose to this. The purpose is this, is that in the book of Judges, what we see 
is we see people that said, we're going to do our own thing, God. Thanks for your advice. Thanks for your tips. Thanks for your law. But we're going to take it from here. We know what's best. And in a sense, they're saying, just trust me, I know what's right. And we actually see the moral depravity that this leads to for the nation of Israel. We also see the foolishness in this if you have kids. Ronnie's used this as an example. I will use this as one. But one of my daughters, even this, uh, over the course of this last two weeks, I, I drop my, well, it's going to be obvious which one. So I drop my oldest off at school, and then my younger hangs out there with me. Uh, pick her up, drop her off, whatnot. I'm not dad of the year. I do this very rarely. My wife normally does that, so before I get blasted afterwards. But there's bike racks there. And Brooks likes to go over to the bike racks, and she wraps her hands around the backside of them and then just throws herself backwards, right? And I'm like, please don't do that. Like, that's going to end poorly. Stop, right? I don't know how many times I've said that. One day I look over, what does she do? She wraps, boom, right on her face, okay? I mean, scuffed up. It was just like, thud. So I was like, are you, are you okay? And she's like, yeah. She goes, this is so descriptive. She goes, it felt like I got hit in the face with a sword. And I'm like, I don't know how you would ever know what that feels like for one or where that comes from. But there's also, and, and this happened just the other day. She's like, I'm going to run after Joey. I was like, don't run after Joey. And she's like, and what does she do? She turns and runs, boom, right into a metal pole. And so she has a knot. If you see it today, please don't call DHS. It's from a metal pole. Okay. There's a part of me that's so evil and wants to be like, I told you so. Like, initially, I just want to be like, ha I know it's jacked up, but I want to do that because there's a part of me that's like, I told you. Like, if you would just trust me. And, and the reality is, is so much, we're like little children with God where he's laid out what's actually good. And, and, and he even says to Joshua, like, like, this is my law. My law is good. I, I've given it to you out of love. It's not so I can suck joy from your life. It's actually so you can have a life filled with joy. That's why I've given it to you. In a prosperous way, prosperity is to have a close relationship with God. So when we arrive at the book of Judges, that's one thing we, we should notice is the Israelites time and time again are like, nah, I'm going to do things my own way. Okay. The other thing that we need to separate our minds from is a, is a 21st century idea of a judge. Because we think courtroom judge who's navigating between legal issues. That's not what a judge is in the book of Judges. What you need to think about is a redeemer, rescue, or military leader. Okay. That's what they were. They were military generals leading military charges for the most part, okay, on behalf of God's people, the nation of Israel. So with that, we're going to dive in. Our main point today is this, is that when we're stripped bare, we're made ready for warfare. I know it sounds intense, and so we'll unpack it as we go, but the nation of Israel is getting ready to go to war, and they're led by this man named Gideon. And so what God is doing is this process of stripping him bare of the things he can put hope and trust and confidence in. And it's not only, or it's not until we're stripped bare that we're made ready for warfare. And Paul in the New Testament says that this is the language, which many times Christians don't think is we're called to war. We're in a war. There's warfare going on. And the way that you're made ready for that is actually be stripped bare of all the things in life that you want to place your trust and confidence in, in and of yourself, self-reliance. So we're going to look at that today as we continue on with the story of Gideon. We're on our fifth judge out of 12 judges. Okay, so we've looked at four others. Gideon is our fifth. Ronnie started it last week. We'll pick up with it today. We'll finish on Gideon next week. So you can read ahead to chapter eight. With that, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we recognize that in the midst of such turbulent times with so many things going on in our culture, that it'd be easy for us to divide. 
be easy for us to have hostility and just animosity in our hearts towards one another. But I pray your grace reminds us today, God, that the only way we have a right standing with you, the only way that we're in your good favor, the only way we go from enemy to child, from separated to held together for eternity is because of your grace. God, I pray grace would melt hearts, that we'd be floored and blown away with what you've done, Jesus. Through and in the cross, through the gospel, through the good news, remind us today, God, where people are hurting, we pray that you would heal, that you would minister. We thank you for even the new, development, uh, the new developments of a cry room, um, God. We thank you for community. We thank you for new babies. We thank you for new life and new birth. God, I know many are struggling in this season of allergies, and so we pray that you provide comfort there as well. But God, thank you that you're not a God of chance. In every way, by your divine care, you've placed us in the lives here today with one another. Let us trust you. Let us trust your word. Let us place our confidence there. Where We have a misplaced confidence, God, right now in anything in and of ourselves ultimately or of you. Place it back in Jesus as a rock. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, stripped bare and made ready for warfare. <clears throat> Many of you guys have heard this, but I heard common phrases growing up. If you've been around for a while, I've told you some of these phrases that I heard from my dad, okay? One of them was that you're thick, which that was my dad's way of saying you're, you're dumb, okay? Another phrase was suck it up. I heard those three words more than any other words. But I also heard other hurtful words and phrases like this. I heard you'll never amount to anything on a common basis. I heard that you're no good for nothing punk kid. And then one of the, one of the most painful ones I heard is that you're useless. And so the problem is, is someone made up a dumb saying once and said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Unless you're just emotionally detached from life, that is untrue. Words shape us and they have power. And that's why we saw last week when we get to Gideon, what we see is that God chooses this man, not by anything this man has done. In fact, Gideon's like, why are you choosing me? He goes, I'm the weakest of my entire clan and our clan is like the weakest of all clans. And then God was like, you're a mighty warrior. And he's like, what? He's literally hiding when God says that. Here's what we have to understand if you're new to Christianity, is that we don't start where the rest of the world starts. We don't start with if you be brave, if you're strong and courageous, and you do strong and courageous things, and you prove yourself to be a mighty warrior, then God will give you a title like that. We looked at this in 1 Corinthians. God starts with the grace-given title. His word to a coward who's a sissy, he was to the core. If you don't like that, Dal, the Hebrew word, actually means helpless. So that's how Gideon describes himself as I'm helpless. He's a sissy. He's not a guy you're going to pick to be on your sports team. And God looks at him and he's like, yeah, mighty warrior. It's because God doesn't say work and arrive at this place. God says, I'm going to pronounce this and speak this over your life. This is who you are. This is your grace-given identity. Now, through my empowerment, through my grace, I'm going to help you live into this identity that you've been given. You see, Catholicism works like this. Once you do good things and become a good person, then you can reach sainthood. Christianity is different. You start as a saint. God says you're holy, you're blameless, you're righteous, you're set apart, perfect, all free, all by my grace. Grace, so we can exegete that term as this. It's something that you don't earn. It's a free gift by God, okay? So God says, 
Here, here you go. God has always worked this way. For the nation of Israel, when, when we see him deliver them out of the Exodus, he doesn't say, hey, work hard and then I'll give you freedom. God gives them freedom, delivers them, and then he gives them the law. But he doesn't say, work at the law and then if you do good, I'll make you free. God has always and will always work like this. He calls Gideon a mighty warrior because that's his identity that he spoke over and into Gideon's life. Now he's like, now as a mighty warrior, I'm gonna do heart surgery on you. And that's where we're at in chapter seven today is that God starts to just lay his heart on the table and do the work that needs to be done to mold him into the grace-given title he's given him because he wants to make him ready for warfare, but he knows he can't do that until he's stripped bare of the things he's placing his trust and faith in. So here's how we're going to look at the text today. Verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at what it is to be stripped bare, okay? 1 through 8. Then in 9 through 14, what we're going to look at is God's patience and tender care when, we're, when we are stripped bare, okay? And then last, we're going to look at 15 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 25, and we're going to look at our grace-given identity that we wear, okay? Which is the best thing to prepare us for warfare. So with that, let, let's dive in. Backstory again, God gives uh, Gideon this grace-given title, not because anything he's earned. Okay, verse one. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, Therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people return and 10,000 remain. Okay? Verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And if anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. Verse 8. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he set all the rest of the Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay? Verses 1 through 8. Time to be stripped bare. So this is it. God calls Gideon, chapter 6. Now they're getting ready to go to battle against the Midianites and the Amalekites. Okay? And this is what God says. It's like you got 32,000 men, which, by the way, that's nothing in comparison, as we see later in the text, to the Midianites and the, uh, the uh, Amalekites, who their army are like locusts throughout the valley. Like they are just spread. 32,000 is nothing. So Gideon has a little bit of confidence, maybe with 32,000 men, but probably not much. What does God do? He's like, uh, it's too many. Let's get rid of two thirds of them. Okay. And he's like, if anyone's a chicken or a coward, just let them go home. At that point, imagine you're going to war and two thirds of your army just starts to walk away. Right. They're leaving because you've just given them permission to leave, okay? What is God doing? God is stripping the things that Gideon can place his confidence in other than God himself. 
He's starting to remove those things, and that's a painful process. Oftentimes, those things for us are called idols. Idols are the things that we worship above Jesus Christ. They're God things, or uh, they're, they're, they're good things, I should say, sorry, that we make God things. So we take the created things of God and make them God by worshiping them, worshiping them above God, okay? Those are idols, and our hearts are given to these things. And it can be as simple as things that we look to for trust, things that we look to for confidence and for hope, things that give us worth. And you'll start to learn what your idols are in life and the things that you're holding on to so tight, because when those things are removed from your life, it stirs up a lot of emotion. A lot of, uh, of your fear and your shame, a lot of your guilt, a lot of your marital problems, a, a lot of our arguments can be boiled down to the things that we're worshiping because we are, whether you like it or not, here, Christian or non-Christian, we're all worshipers. I like what David Foster Wallace says. I've read this quote before, who's not a Christian, and he, and he even recognizes this, that we're all worshipers. Gideon, all of us worshipers. This is what David Foster Wallace says, who's a writer. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Remember, not a Christian. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, so on and so on. David Foster Wallace, we're all worshipers. What are we worshiping? Typically, we will see the things that we've placed our hope in, we've placed our trust in, we've placed our confidence in, and the things we're standing on. How do we know that? Because when those things are kicked out, oftentimes by God and his grace, our worlds can fall apart. So a question I would ask you today, what are the things that you're placing your confidence in? What are the things you're hoping in? What are the things that you're looking to? What are the things that you have placed your trust in because oftentimes those are the things that we're grabbing hold of and we're trying so bad to squeeze them with everything we have to give us worth, to give us hope, to give us confidence. And God will strip them bare, not because he's unloving, but because he is so loving that he knows that anything else other than him in your life to place as a rock is fickle. Really, really fickle. You know what the New York Times says? Where you can get confidence from? This is what it says. The, the, the New York Times gives a couple options. Self-confidence is your belief in how good you are at something, but it's not a measure of your actual skill. If building self-confidence is a matter of changing your beliefs about yourself, it's going to take some work. They go on to give 
four ways that you can build your self-confidence. Start working out. Try a new look. Make it a habit of writing things down that you've done well and adjust your posture, okay? When our world says get self-confidence, we always seek some religious outward endeavor to do it. That's religion to the core. It's work hard, do something externally that you can grab hold of and say, this gives me self-confidence, but what do you do when you're someone like Jacoby Miles? I don't know if you guys remember Caleb who used to go to GCC. We called him Sunshine because he had long hair like the guy from Remember the Titans. One of my favorite people. Jacoby is his twin sister who was an incredible gymnast and at the age of 15 became paralyzed from the chest down because she came off the uneven bars wrong. If you asked her, he said, would she take it back? That, that comment to her is silly because of the way that God has shown his grace for her in her life because of this. You see, to, to, to go and tell people to get better posture, what if you have scoliosis? To, to go and tell people to work out, what if you reach a point in your life when you can't work out anymore and we're telling people this is how you can gain confidence in life? What if it's actually about being stripped bare to look no other place than God himself and placing our trust in him and who he's made us in and through his son? This is what God is doing to Gideon and it's not gonna be a fun process. He gives him this weird, bizarre thing. I don't think we should read too much in it. Go down the water, find some guys that are lapping water, Scholars go both ways. Some, some scholars believe that Gideon was uh, th through this and the process, he was given like the most elite warriors. I think the story lends itself to say probably not. He probably got the weakest ones because God has constantly stripped him of things he can place confidence in. And so here again, we have this man being stripped of anything he can place his trust in. Two thirds of his army and God's like, nah, that's not enough. People are going to boast. Oh, oh you know, they're, they're going to boast over me and get praised. Why is that dangerous? Because look at any pride-hungry person throughout human history. Stalin, Pol Pot, Mayo, all of these people, that the more victory they get, the more power-hungry they get. The only one who deserves glory and praise, period, because he's created everyone and everything is God, but he's the only one that can sustain that sort of praise because there's not something missing in him that he's trying to fill up through human praise. In fact, it's a very good thing by God when he starts to knock us down and knock down the things that we place confidence in, because as the saying goes, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So when we build this false image or place our hope in so many things and we keep climbing the rung or, or, or building it up taller, whatever we're standing upon in life, when that gets knocked out, that can destroy people. If it's a hope outside of anything that can fail or that cannot fail, I mean. God, which cannot fail. And standing upon that means that the God of the universe is immutable. He doesn't change. He cannot fail. Can't be kicked out. So we see this process. What are other idols? There are many idols. One of the big ones in the church today is the idol of ideology. We see this time and time again. I thought I would be somewhere else than I am. I thought I would have kids by now. I thought I would have a marriage by now. I thought my marriage would look like this. I thought my husband would look like this. My wife would look like this. Our sex life would look like this. Our communication would look like this. Oftentimes we have all these ideologies that we're holding on to that create so many problems in our life. Instead of breaking up with our ideologies, we hold them up higher and higher. Again, these are idols that can suck the joy out of our lives that God will do a process of stripping bare. And you know what happens when you strip bare? One, you, you, you can just feel exposed and naked. 
I had a reoccurring dream when I was growing up that I would show up to school. If this is too much information, I apologize. Uh, and, the, and the dream that I kept having was that I showed up to school with a shirt and no underpants, right? Has one person in the room ever had this dream growing up? Okay, that's enough. That's good enough for me. That makes me happy. I remember in my dreams just constantly feeling vulnerable. When God does this process of stripping us bare, it's painful, people. Let's be honest. Having our idols pulled away from us, the, the, the things that we hold up in our life, ha having those things stripped out, that's a painful process. But in it, what he's starting to see, or what he's trying to allow us to see, is that his grace is sufficient for us. You will never appreciate what it is to be clothed with the righteousness, beauty, and perfection of Jesus until you feel like you've been laid bare. You'll never fully rely upon God's grace and the sufficiency of it until you're put in a position to where you actually have to depend upon it. And God says, here you go. You got nothing left but me. This was me. I, I, I hated public speaking. Freaks me out. I remember I had to lead prayer the first time, and I was a train wreck from that, and to do announcements, a train wreck from that. I, 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 I don't think we will do those things or ever put ourselves in, in the position of failure unless we know that God's grace is sufficient for us in our weaknesses. That's what Paul boasted about. He's like, strip me bare. Leave me with nothing but weakness, because if, if anything after all that, I know this for sure. If something great happens from my life when I'm shown to be what I truly am, then God alone will get the glory for it. We're the only club on the face of the earth, Christianity is, that can boast in our weaknesses because we've all arrived by grace. We've all arrived by grace. There's, there's no one who, who is in Christianity who is standing outside of grace. We all have the same title to start, sinner, train wrecks, right? Not the little engine that could, but the train wrecks who can't. That's how we start. We're brought in by grace. We're kept in by grace. We have the same title. There's no one that's a little bit higher, a little bit lower all God's sons and daughters by grace. God will strip the things in life that we place our trust and hope and confidence in because he wants to do what he says in Psalm 147, 11. He says this, we won't pull it up there. It says, the Lord takes pleasure in this, in those who hope in my steadfast love. So we should listen. If, if, if a text says, this is what God takes pleasure in, and then he follows it up and says, those who hope in my steadfast love, those who hope in my love that will never change, Season through season, in and out, my steadfast love. God does not change. He is infinite. He's immutable. He never rises and falls. His infinite love, hope in that. Because you could add up all the loving parents, all the love in the world, you would still have a fraction that's measurable of love. God's love is immeasurable for his children. It's without limit. And he's like, hope in this. And he will strip bare the things until you're left to where you go. Jesus is what I got. God's grace is what I have. I don't know how I'm going to continue on in life, but I know this, that through this dark, difficult, rough season, God's grace will be sufficient for me. Next, we get to see this, that God's patience and tender care when we're stripped bare like that, verses 9 through 14. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purit, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. 
When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay flat. And his comrade said, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. You got to see this. God's purpose of stripping us bare making us ready for warfare, it it is not so we can just be exposed. God's purpose of doing that is love so we can replace our trust and faith and confidence in him. But in that process, he meets us there. Sadly, I think we think God to be like us when it comes to patience. Like when my daughter does something like we do, we're like, uh, you know, I I told you so. We, We just have such little patience. And then we project that on God, though Isaiah says, God is nothing like us. God is also infinite in his patience. You see, God didn't have to to tell Gideon, hey, Gideon, I know you're still scared. And if you're scared, you can go down to their camp and you can listen. I've, I've got a surprise for you there. And what God does is he's like, let me pull back the curtains and let you show you what I'm doing behind the scenes. You have to realize God is a God of immense patience and care and tenderness. and the the book of Romans, Romans 2, 4, it actually says that it's actually God's care and his kindness that leads us to repentance. It actually leads us to worship. When people come face to face with God's patience, his mercy and his care, it leads as we see in verse 15, it says, and as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the stream and its interpretation, he worshiped. When you experience how much God's patience is for you, the response is worship. You see, when, when we worship idols, we're wrapping our, 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 our hands around something, our lives around something. The most loving thing God can do is to redirect our worship to himself. And he does that through his kindness. He does that through his grace. He does that through his love. He does that through his care. One of the things that I have to be patient with as a pastor is reformed theologians, okay? We are reformed in our theology, love reformed theology. I think it's a beautiful theology. But time and time again, have to be patient with this. There's something called the cage stage, right? And it's for those people that get a hold of doctrines, the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, they run out into the world. And instead of letting that theology master their hearts, they have mastered the theology, okay? And so they run out into the world, not really being mastered by grace, grasping the the, the depths of grace, but instead trying to master grace. I love theology but sometimes we can try and master theology before the theology is mastered us. Sometimes we can try and uh, get a handle on the word of God before the word of God is getting a handle on us. And I just have to be patient. I, I just have to be patient. We have to be patient. Who is God calling you to be patient with? We see God's patience towards Gideon, but God also calls us to be patient as well. Very patient. I think sometimes we, 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 we lose sight of grace and we lose sight of the beauty of grace which inevitably leads to a lot of anxiety, us running after a lot of things. You know what also happens is the left starts fighting with the right. And where we lose patience is we say the people with mask on are idiots. The people with mask off are idiots. Instead of having patience in the patience displayed by God through Midian that he also calls us to display, those who grasp the patience and the grace and the mercy of God are quick to give it. And just to be honest, if, if our greatest fight, <laughs> if our greatest fight is on mask, then man, that is a puny and pathetic fight. 
If that's what we're consumed in, that's what we're spending our time thinking about, dwelling on, just, 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 I mean, just consumed by, there are people in the world who don't know Jesus. That's why Paul literally says in Ephesians 6, he says, your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual darkness of this world. And if we're spending our time on these things, are we still consumed by grace? Are we still consumed by the gospel? Are we still consumed by taking the gospel to the people in the world that don't know the gospel? Are we displaying what it is to be long-suffering as God is long-suffering toward us? If you're in the South, patience looks different, right? It's like you got to be patient with a guy with tattoos and a backward hat. We're in the Pacific Northwest. We got to be patient with people that just differ from us. And remember what the main thing is. Let your heart marinate and saturate in grace and in the gospel. And know that there is a world full of people, Christians and non-Christians, that need that message. Next, what happens to Gideon is he gets a grace-given identity that is the best thing that makes him more ready than anything else for warfare. Verse 16 to the end of the chapter, we'll read it. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the joints. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, what happened from coward to military genius, okay? He's taken them into war. Like what happened in Gideon? God did a heart work, a heart surgery of stripping him bare, but also showing him the one thing that matters. Gideon, I'm with you. I'm patient. I'm with you. I'm fighting this thing. This battle is mine. The victory is mine. God plus no one every time equals victory. He doesn't even need Gideon. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. Like they're going in looking like a, a, a marching band. Like, that's what they're going to war with. They got a trumpet, and they got some torches. And they're like, let's go win this thing. Like, I'm, I'm thinking we're dead. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. Because he finally grasped, there's where my confidence is. Not in my military geniusness, not in my strength, not in anything like that. It's actually in the God who is with me, the God of Jacob. It's not in princes, as Mark read from the psalm earlier. It, it's, it's not in man. It's not in the things of this world. It's actually in God. And it's in what God says about me. Look at verse 19. We're going to read to the end here. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. The author of Judges is making it clear. They don't even have swords, guys. <laughs> in their left hand, their right hands, like their hands are tied up. These are not weapons of war, okay? And they, and, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 21, every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Gideon. 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they were captured, the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. 
and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. What happened again? Is God stripped Gideon bare, and he made him ready for war. That's it. Because in order to be ready for war, in order to be ready to live out the Christian faith in what Paul would see as a war, then you're going to have to let God do his work of stripping idols from our lives and stripping us bare so that we can say his grace is sufficient. But we have to know the God that meets us with his patience and tender care as we're stripped bare, as he redirects our focus day after day. That's my job as a preacher, as Sinclair Ferguson says, to remind people of your grace-given identity. That's the job of a pastor. Keep pushing you back to the gospel. Keep bathing in the gospel. Keep taking you back to the gospel. That's what I have to do. That's what we need to do for one another. Again, Gideon's, Gideon's confidence wasn't in and of himself, size of his army. You know, the university, our university, UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. Get those confused. That started because there was groups of people that said, which form of martial arts is the most dominant in all the world? Okay? And so they brought all these different martial arts together inside of a cage, and they said, let the karate guy fight the boxer, let the wrestler fight this guy. And do you know who showed himself to be dominant? The weakest of his clan. The weakest of the Gracies. The weakest of all in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They chose Hoist Gracie the puniest, scrawniest out of their entire family. They showed it for a reason. They showed that the art and dominance of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the most dominant, and he took out everyone. He took out guys like twice his size. Because ultimately, it wasn't about the size of the guy. It was about the art itself. And ultimately, it's not about us, and it's not about our capabilities. It's about being held in God's hands and letting God faithfully move and work through us. It's about the, the message of the gospel and its power. And through our lives, the greatest thing God can do is give us an identity that can't be shaken and can't be changed. And what we see here is we see a fight that happens and victory that happens with really odd weapons, no sword in their hands. Jesus fights an otter war thousands of years later with no sword in, on, uh, in his hand, but a cross on his back. What's he doing? He came to give us an identity. He came to fight the greater fight. He came to show us that idols can be defeated, that sin can be defeated, that Satan can be defeated. He came to take out our greatest threat, not the Midianites, not whatever it is we want in life, but to be reconciled to God and no longer be his enemy, but instead be infinitely loved by him. One of the things that I love about the gospel is this, is that when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate and Herod, they, they say this, true words have never been spoken. I find no guilt in this man. When, when, when he's on the cross, the criminals are even arguing with, with one another because the one's making fun of him. And he's like, hey, we deserve what we're getting. This man is innocent. They say the same thing. We can't find guilt in him. When the centurion, after Jesus died, he's like, surely this man was innocent. What you have to know and understand this is that Jesus dealt with our greatest threat on the cross so we could have the greatest confidence and assurance to know that we are God's child and that cannot change. God's not punishing you right now if things are hard in your life, and you have the cross to give your assurance in that. You know that God's words to you through faith in Jesus Christ are the same words that Pontius Pilate said? God's, God's words to you are this, I find no guilt in this man or in this woman, period. This man, this woman is innocent. That's our identity. 
And now the best thing we can do is live in this identity, out of this identity, into the war that God's called us all to, to go and proclaim his name to all the nations, to all the earth, to love people well. I'll end with this short story. Is as a Christian, you have an unshakable identity that can give you true confidence because of this. The God who gave you that identity cannot change. All of our world is changing around us. It's very turbulent right now, okay? The identity you have as a son, as a daughter that stands before God, guiltless and innocent, that cannot change. There is nothing you can do to change that. You hold up the life of Christ. That's what we hold up. Those words, as God declares it over us, are the best and freeing thing that turns cowards to to men and women who are courageous. Here's why. I told you the, the, the names and the phrases I heard growing up. Years ago, several years back, I had to go and take the GRE, which is a graduate record exam, right? I remember talking to several students at the U of O. I was like, what, what are you guys going to school for? What are you uh, going to grad school for? What are you doing all that? It's like this, like nothing. Like there was so much weight for them to go in and take this test. Like so much was riding on this test. Like this is it, their future, everything like that. I was chipper. I was excited. Why? Because I already had my job. It wasn't going to change anything. I already had identity. It wasn't going to change anything. The more that Christians grasp that the ultimate thing that you need, you have, and it changes the way we take tests. It changes the way we live life. It instills a confidence in us to know the God of creation is on my side. I am his. He is mine. He's never going to change about that. I have this grace-given identity, and now I'm empowered by the Spirit. He's also freely given to me to live a guiltless, sinless, innocent life. Though I fail every day, God's grace stays sufficient along the way. Let's pray. God, we recognize that you are so good and so gracious and so patient and so tender. God, I pray that there's anyone that's in the midst of a season right now that just questions that, that you administer to them right now in this spot they're in, reminding them of your sufficient grace, God. Thank you for the process of laying us bare. Thank you for the process of stripping us. Thank you for the process of realigning our hearts in the gospel. Let us not get caught up in in aimless, trivial fights. God, let us fight to present the gospel to people day in and day out of our lives. Let us, as Paul said, not get caught up in just civilian pursuits. Let us be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. Amen.